the story of the Birch Bark House is moving into spring, called Ziguan. And chapter 12 is called Maple Sugar Time. Everyone in the cabin heard it. The far-off creaking and groaning. The boom of the lake ice. The lake had started to move again. The ice was breaking up. Once the waves began, huge sheets of ice shoved against each other, pushing towers into the air. Nokomis, Mama, Dede, Pinch, Angeline, and Omakayas all ran outside, gazed on the horizon, and saw the crackling and snapping waves of the ice. They felt the surge of lake water in their blood. They knew, at last, that the back of winter was entirely broken. Omakayas grinned. Her smile was now whole. New teeth had grown in over the winter. She was older. Soon, spring plants would poke up through the dead leaves. The curled heads of ferns, buds, roots, fresh new leaves. Fat lake trout would sleepily rise from the bottom, hungry to be caught. Siskel and white fish would fill their nets. They would be able to think of something other than the next bite of food. They would live again, truly live. Angeline went to the mission school every day now. She was learning to write her name in Zaganoshimowin, the white man's language, and she taught Omakayas the things she learned. Using a pointed stick to write in wet mud, Angeline showed Omakayas and Nokomis the meaningful signs, which looked a lot looked like odd tracks. What animal would leave these? Omakayas teased. Be patient. Nokomis counseled. Let's find out what your sister has learned. They're letters, Angeline said, eager to share her knowledge. One follows the next. You look at them, just like tracks. You read them. You have a, they have a meaning and a sound. Hoa! That's a good idea, like our picture writing, Nokomis said. The girls knew people like Fishtail's father, Day Thunder, who kept the records for the religious gatherings, the Midwinuin, and etched stories and songs on scrolls made of birch bark. They had seen some birch bark writing, and they knew that Nokomis could etch pictures into bark too. She also knew where certain marks had been placed upon lake rocks long ago. Some of the marks were made by the spirits. Some were made by humans. Others were drawn by a giant race of people who had lived on earth in the old days and had disappeared. Angeline's description of the white man's tracks interested Omakayas in spite of herself. The system sounded incredible. Sounds, meanings, but the idea made sense. Thereafter, to learn the Zagana Mishuin letters and sounds became a source of amusement, for the evenings were still long. Aye, said Angeline, tracing the letter on the rough stone of the earth. Aye, said Omakayas. B. C. D. She learned to make the pictures, and she learned to make the sounds slowly, all of them. Words would follow, Angeline said, but Omakayas could not believe that that would happen. She remembered that last winter, before the sickness began, she had seen Fishtail walking from the mission school. He had learned to make the white man's tracks. Had he learned to write his own name? Had he learned to read the words of the treaties so that his people could not be cheated of land? Buzu, Nindi Noe Manadikak, called Fishtail one day. He was at the door of the cabin, calling hello to his relatives. 
Grandma greeted him kindly, for he was ashamed of his thinness and weakness. She brought him inside. His hair was short and wild as porcupine quills, his face starved and sallow with grief. No longer did he wear the proud, somewhat disdainful look he'd worn when walking seriously along through the woods, his pipe cradled in his arms. He was still hawk-keen, with a strong and handsome face, but his eyes were more human, humble, gentle. He gazed pityingly down at Omakas and touched her hair. "'Little frog,' he said, and there was a hint of smile in his voice, as though to see her brought him comfort. "'My good wife loved you as her little sister. You made her laugh with your quick ways. She told me you were much loved by the bear people. She told me also you had a bird named Andeg. "'And egg!' called Omakayas, and like the art, the dark arrow, her crow swooped down and landed on her shoulder. And Egg looked curiously at Fishtail, wondering whether he possibly had something to feed him. The bird danced from foot to foot, took a strand of Omakayas's hair in his beak, but did not pull. And Egg tucked the hair behind Omakayas's ear, just like a grandfather soothing a child to sleep. Awah, said Fishtail in wonder. You are much beloved by the creatures. Over his shoulder, Fishtail carried a blanket, meaning that he had much to say and planned to spend the night. Dede greeted him, holding him by the arms, and Noko Miss stirred up the fire, adding a stick there, a bit of wood in exactly the right spot to make it blaze up cheerfully. Mama had made a good stew, filled with flaky chunks of fish, and the kettle bubbled hot, hung above the hearth fire. Fishtail took off his big moose-hide mitts, and Angeline dished up a wooden bowl of the soup, eager for him to sit and warm himself. Because he was related as a cross-cousin, and also because he had been the husband of her friend, she was familiar around him and not shy at all. She tried to cheer him up, to bring a smile to his face, by teasing him gently. Dede needs snowshoes all winter, but you? Angeline pointed with her lips at Fishtail. Already have yours on, eh? Fishtail gave a little smile, but there was still too much sadness in him to laugh. He waggled his feet. They were big, it was true, almost as big as snowshoes, as big as old tallow's huge long ones. Ay, ah, they come in handy, Fishtail acknowledged. If I lose a paddle, I've always got one attached. He took great gulps of the fish broth, and slowly, feeling better, he warmed to the talk with Day-Day. They were planning this year's sugaring, a time everyone looked forward to with joy and excitement, as much as ricing, maybe even more. For when the maple sap began to run, it meant that warmer days, pleasant sun, all the beauties of spring were close at hand. The sweetness just at the raggedy end of winter. Nokomis was excited as a girl, and her enthusiasm made everyone smile with affection. But the creator expects us to be ready. While you talk, you men work. She herself was smoothing out a paddle to use in stirring the syrup, and just the day before, Dede had started hollowing a peeled, smooth piece of basswood for a trough. Now Dede asked for the use of Omakayas's gun barrel flesher. She brought it quickly from its place in the corner. She was glad to find another use for Dede's gift besides the usual unpleasant one of scraping hides. Taking the hide flesher in his hands, Dede sharpened the end well on his sharpening stone, holding the barrel in his strong fingers like a chisel. He hit the other end with his mallet, tapping long slices of wood away from the inside of the log. Every strip of wood he tapped from the inside, Pinch grabbed and threw into the fire. 
The trough grew smoother, deeper. Fishtail, meanwhile, smoked peacefully and looked into the leaping flames. You get to work too, Angeline said, smiling. She tossed him a bit of venison jerky, though for him to chew on, though for him to chew on when he finished smoking his kinnikinnick. The family sugaring place was at the other end of the island. When they traveled to the sugar bush, the family packed as lightly as possible. Once they arrived, they would use the frames set up la from last year for their big sugaring house. There was a smaller wigwam where the tools were stored. There usually was a food cache buried last fall, filled with good things that had lain far beneath the snow. But this year, Dede had already made a trip to the end of the island and raided the cache. To keep them from starving, they had already eaten their store during the lean moon. When they arrived, the first thing Mama did was unroll the reed mats for the roof of the shelter, then the blankets, then take out new paddles and the cooking pot. Dede dragged a big kettle and more wooden troughs and paddles from the small storage house. Anything that wasn't at the sugaring place, or anything that broke or wore out, they could make for themselves. Nokomis and Omakayas arranged the food they'd brought. There were packets of split dried fish, a makuk of special powdered fish, moose meat, a little manamin traded for with deer meat, smoked fish, and a bag of dried pumpkin flowers to thicken soups. Neshki, said Nokomis, happy they had so much. We'll have a good feast. Once the soup was in the making, Nokomis left Angeline to stir and called Omakayas to come along and help chop taps to open the maples. The two wandered a bit until Nokomis found a good ironwood tree. She took out her sharp hatchet and expertly chopped into the tree at regular angles. She made a series of perfect cuts down the side of the tree and then chopped sideways and split from the the tree ten perfect wedges of the hard ironwood. She did this until she had a huge sack full of wedges, which Omakayas lugged back to the camp. For two days they prepared, knowing that the sap was just about to start running. There was a feeling to that time before the sap began, a quietness that had the going-out taste of winter. All that happened in the snow and cold, the storytelling and the sadness, too, was left behind. Omakayas opened herself to the warming wind. Before them, the sweetness of the maple waited, the warmth of the sun. Omakayas, Twilight, and Little Bee carted heavy rocks from the lakeshore to weigh down the makooks and then hauled wood for the fire. Omakayas's arms were tired, and her cousins too. They complained impatiently to each other as they hunted for the right-sized stones or hauled load after load of wood in their arms, dumping it near the big kettle, which was boiling and steaming away. As yet, not one taste of the maple syrup, just the cold, sweet sap. It was always this way before the first taste. The boiling down seemed to take so endlessly long. Pinch watched jealously, jumped on a log to observe Grandma's paddle when it came up and dipped back down again. Still not ready. Still not. Still not. Then, ready. Onto the surface of a big makuk filled with clean snow, Grandma dribbled a thick, dark gold stream of syrup. Pinch could hardly wait for it to cool. Gum sugar! He grabbed it while it was still a soft rope, swung the strand into his mouth, and ran for once quiet instead of yelling, only because his mouth was stuffed. And Egg was caught up in the excitement, and he jumped from foot to foot, 
nearly tumbling from Amakas's shoulder as Angeline poured out more syrup and then helped Grandma ladle the rest into the sugaring trough. He pecked at a bit of the syrup, but didn't seem to like the sticky feel of it on his beak, and shook his head comically. He put his head in the snow, wiped his beak back and forth, but couldn't remove the hardening syrup. He flew up to a low branch and glared down at them, betrayed, preening his feathers, making his feathers sticky with the syrup too. Minopagwad, said Omakayas, licking up a dollop of the thick syrup. The first taste usually made her smile. Not this time. Sadness overwhelmed her when she tasted the sweetness. She instantly recalled the special day she spent with Niwo on the shore of the lake. On that day, long ago last summer, she had freed him from the tight bonds of his tekinagun, let him tumble and play. When it came time for her to put him back, she'd sweetened his confinement by placing her last bit of sugar on his tongue. Chickadee, my brother, she cried to Niwo under her breath. She looked around. Pinch was running and jumping, striking out with a stick and pretending to hunt doves. Nokomis was stirring the syrup, using a dancing kind of smooth movement in, with her arms. Mama was putting together a stew, and Dede was off somewhere with Fishtail, planning ceremonies that would be held during the sugaring, not far from their camp. Angeline looked at her and said, Nesha may go get some more wood. She, Omakaias, was the only one thinking of Niwo. The knowledge made her lonely. If only she could talk to him, look into his cheerful, unslanted eyes, share with him her feelings that he never had, that he never laughed at, play with him in her arms. She missed him terribly, so much that her heart seemed to drop right through her stomach with a thud. Muffling her cries, she ran from camp straight into the woods. Angeline was surprised. Usually her sister did not fetch wood with such enthusiasm. Hawa! She called after her little sister, Megwitch! Amakayas knew that she would not come back, however, and Angeline could catch her, catch her own wood. She ran with an angry heart, breathing hard, skimming away as fast as she could. She got away from everyone before she sat down on a little patch of dry, sunny ground. At last, it was all right to sob and sob, to let herself cry as much as she wanted to. But the strange thing was, as soon as she sat down, she didn't feel like crying anymore. She heard the song of the white-throated sparrow and was soothed by the piercing refrain. She smiled. Niwo's spirit was comforting her. Her eyelids got heavy, the sun warmed her, and she was just about lost in a dream when she was startled by the crackle of sticks and twigs, the shuffle of feet, the interested snuffling, and most of all the commanding and unmistakable odor of bear. They were with her. Standing quiet at the edge of the little spot of sun, the two young bears gazed curiously, knowingly, at Omakayas. And Deg flew down suddenly, as though he, the little crow, had to protect her from her brothers. The two bears startled a bit at the crow's angry charge, but then shrugged and ignored him. "'It's okay,' said Omakayas, and Anne Deg returned to her shoulder." The bears continued to look closely at Omakayas, peering with their dim bear eyes, taking in every dot of her scent, remembering it all, knowing. Omakayas wished she had something to give them. She had run away from camp with nothing more than a handful of spirit tobacco in her pocket. They kept looking at her, waiting and watching. The only thing she could think of to give them, in the end, was some human advice. She decided to warn them about other humans and the dangers they posed. There's a woman, Amakaya said softly. 
Her name is Old Tallow. She's my aunt. But you must stay away from her. The young bear's ears twitched a little. They seemed to listen closely. Be careful, too, Amakias went on. When you see something better to eat than usual out in the woods, if it's hanging up out of reach, there might be a pit underneath. That's a trap. You'll fall in and die. Oh, and guns. My brothers, run fast from men carrying big sticks on their shoulders. Stay away from them. Don't go near the humans, either the Anishinaabe or the Chimukaman. Stay deep in the woods. Hide if you hear old Tallow's dogs. Omakas reached into her pocket and took out the little handful of tobacco. She put the tobacco on the ground. When she did, she knew she was asking for something, but she wasn't sure what it was. Words she had not expected came from her lips. Will you give me your medicine? She asked this, but her voice was uncertain. She really didn't know what she meant. She felt embarrassed at herself. I'm pitiful, she said, just as her grandmother did sometimes when praying. I don't know anything. I want to know your medicine. I want to be like Noko Miss. I want strong medicines to save my family. Tears came to Amakayas's eyes, and she could hardly see, hardly noticed when the bears wheeled and silently disappeared. Help me, she whispered to the ground. Help me. Once she'd finished talking, she lifted her face and looked around. Her bear brothers had vanished, and she felt better. She set to work gathering a huge load of dry sticks, dead branches, torn off during the winter by heavy snow and ice. As she was piling the branches higher and higher, she saw, on the side of a dry piece of birchwood, the gray hoof of a mushroom. A tiny voice whispered in her head, a low voice muttering. When she picked up the branch, the voice grew louder, but she still couldn't make out the individual words. She added the branch to her pile, bound the pile with a throng, carried it back to the camp, on her shoulders. From time to time, as she walked back to camp through the woods, she'd hear a small sound, a word or two, muffled under the snow and leaves. By the time she reached the sugaring camp, she felt a little bit afraid. What were these voices? What did the whispering mean? Standing in the clearing, safe, she peered into the maze of branches and undergrowth. Shining scraps of low lighted snow I'm sorry, shining scraps of snow lighted the ground as far as she could see. The sounds of voices, small and whispery, still floated from the depth of the woods. What took you so long? Angeline said, a bit annoyed. <clears throat> She'd burned her finger in the process of pouring some hot syrup, and she was hurting badly. What's wrong with you? Amakaias put down her load and told her sister that she had something important to do. <clears throat> so do I Angeline yelled back. Omakaias walked over to Noko Miss. She was fashioning small cones of birch bark for the sugar. She had saved a string of duck bills, too, that she'd fill with hard sugar for a special treat. Omakaias sat down beside her. Noko Miss, said Omakaias, her voice soft and troubled. I talked to my bear brothers. I listened to them like you told me. Immediately, Noko Miss set down her work, wiped her hands on her skirt, and brought her granddaughter over to a wide fallen log to sit with her. She smoothed Omakaias's hair down to either side and looked keenly into her eyes and face. Wait. Intent and serious, Noko Miss filled her redstone pipe with tobacco. It was a sign that she was going to hear something important. And she took a long time, perfectly tamping her pipe. 
which was good because during that time, Amakaias had the chance to think about just what she wanted to tell her grandmother. When Nokomis lit the pipe and drew on it, the coals burning, the sweetness of the smoke filled the air around them and made a small, holy room in which they sat, their minds close together. I talked to them, Amakaias repeated. What did you say? I told them how to be careful of humans. Hmm, that's good, said Nokomis, reflecting. Unless we need meat. What did you say next? I asked my bear brothers for help, said Omakaias carefully. What did they do? I don't know. What do you mean? A wreath of smoke swirled around Nokomis's face. I asked them for medicine said Omakaias, and when I looked up they were gone, but as I walked back here I heard voices. Omakaias looked quickly at her grandmother to see if she understood. And as she not only nodded, Omakaias went on talking. They were odd voices, all different types of voices. Did they come from the woods? Yes. Did you understand what they were saying to you? No. Neither did I said Nokomis, her voice pleased. Not at first. Amakaias looked at her grandmother, remembering the time she had asked whether the plant medicines had ever spoken to her. Nokomis took the pipe from her lips and gave Amakaias a long and searching look of regard. Her eyes beamed out a quiet message of love. Nokomis understood the meaning of what had happened, understood why the voices had spoken, understood what it meant for Amakaias's future and was proud and glad to have a granddaughter who was chosen to be a healer. Even now, today, I sometimes don't know what they are saying. But then I am old and getting weak, said Nokomis. You are young and strong, Omakaias, and as I teach you about my medicines, you'll hear them more clearly. Do they talk to you every day? Oh, no, but often enough. Why were they talking all at once? Omakaias wondered. Nokomis thought for a while. I think they talk to each other all the time, she said, but our minds are not always peaceful enough to hear them. Nokomis told Omakaias that bears dig for medicine. They are a, kind, a different kind of people from us. They don't use fire, but they laugh. They hold their children. They eat the same things we do and treat themselves with medicine from certain plants. They are known as healers. Those in the bear clan are often good at healing others. Nokomis said all of these things while stirring syrup, sugaring, constantly checking and rechecking the fires, making extra makuks and cones of birch bark to hold the sugar they would have that year. It turned out to be a good year. The sap went down into the roots during the cold nights, came up strong when the sun warmed the trunks during the day, the winter had started out bare, frosted the trees deeply, and then the deep snows had fallen. That was known as the best kind of year for maple sap. No thunderstorms marred the flavor of the sugar. No prayers for good weather went unanswered. Amakaias's family sugared close to Auntie Muskrats, and her cousins flooded into the into their camp, a wave of flying limbs and eager faces, ready for the vast games the children played all through the trees and brush. Omakaias forgot the bears, forgot the whispering of the plants, became a cousin within a pack of cousins, roaming the camps, stealing bits of sugar, laughing at each other. The girl cousins and her friends, Two Strike, Twilight, and Little Bee, 
played together in such a lively way. They were a tangle of girl. She even went to sleep each night with a tiny sense of anticipation in her heart. Still, she thought of Niwo. Even her cousins could not take away that sadness. The work came first. But then, lengthening light in the afternoons kept the children at play outside and kept the aunts talking, the men gossiping, the grandmas reminiscing about their own playing days as small children when they roamed the sugar camps. Always in the near distance, sacred drums were sounding. The sound of the drums called people to the good life, a way of kindness, love, and deep respect for all that lived. Dede sometimes sang to help Fishtail. Often there was a healing ceremony, a doctoring to cure the winter's illnesses. The old people talked to the young people, teaching them about the way to live as an Anishinaabe in this world. Nokomis taught, but someone had to tend the sugar house fires, so many days she stayed inside, it stayed instead of going to the ceremonies. Mama came and went, Angeline too, and sometimes they brought Amakayas to the big lodge with the endlessly burning sacred fire. Always on entering, Omakayas walked around the fire the same way the sun travels, and then she sat down in the calm of the lodge and listened to the crackle of the scented flames, waited for the throb of the drum. Pinch came too, but he never sat still, not for an instant. He dived in and out of the lodge, snagged food wherever he could get it, fell asleep on the blankets Day-Day kept spread in the corner near Fishtail and Day-Thunder's drum. Pinch woke, jumped up, bolted from the lodge. He was on the move all day and night. Pinch was the quickest, the boldest, and the most irritating of the boys at all the, in all of the camps. One day, while Amakayas was busy helping Dede, and the others were at the big lodge, Pinch made himself a small bow, strung with a bit of sewing sinew, and a couple of arrows made from sharpened plant stalks. He sneaked through the woods, longing to make his big kill, if only a deer just his size would pass by, or a moose maybe. If not that, a fish. He could surely spear a fish with one of his arrows. Pinch tramped the edge of the lake so, and many times, edged out as far as he could go on the rocky shore. There was a small margin of water now, before the ice began, and the fish were hungry. Pinch got in plenty of shots, but none of them went true. He kept having to wade into the foot or so of freezing water to retrieve his arrows, so eventually Pinch's attention turned back to the camp. Making his way home, he resolved that he would hunt and shoot something, anything, to impress his family, especially his sisters, who thought he was a nuisance, beneath notice, as irritating as a fly. Halfway back, Pinch nearly stumbled over a carcass of dead deer. It had died not long ago, and lay cold and still right in his path. Hoah! Pinch yelled fiercely. He had an immediate thought, drawing his arrows, his arrow out of the quiver he'd constructed for himself. He managed, though with great difficulty, to stick them into the carcass of the deer. He lodged one at the heart and one at the throat. Then he gave four loud, ferocious shouts. He'd made his first kill. Now there would have to be a feast for him. I made my first kill, he yelled as he approached the camp. Everyone turned to look at him. Thrilled with himself, he bounded forward in such intense excitement that he bumped straight into Dede at the side of the kettle, just as he was pouring boiling hot syrup into a sugaring trough. Pinch screamed as the syrup spilled over his feet. Even though they were protected by moccasins, much of the sap flooded in through the open top flap and burned poor Pinch, 
badly, much worse than Angeline's finger. Pinch was no silent sufferer and yelled so loud that Omakayas thought the whole camp would be running to his side to see what was the matter. The drums were too penetrating, though, and blocked the sounds even of Pinch's pain. Gently, Dede removed Pinch's moccasins. The burns were deep. The skin was already bubbling and dangerous-looking. Pinch needed quick treatment, and most of Nokomis's medicines were back at the cabin. Dede set out at once to fetch Nokomis, leaving Omakayas alone with Pinch, who howled miserably. Omakayas blocked out his cries in order to think clearly what she should do. Nokomis had left her a small pouch in the sugar house, the one that she always carried for emergencies. That pouch contained remedies for all sorts of common problems, including burns. Omakayas remembered it, took it from its corner, and sat down near Pinch to look at his foot. Don't howl, she said to him kindly and soothingly. You'll bring all your blood to the top of your skin and make it worse. Whether or not that was true, it seemed to scare Pinch to making some effort to control the noises he made. For the first time, he looked up at his big sister with trusting eyes. Help me, he whimpered. It hurts. That was all she needed to hear. I'm going to make it better, said Omakayas, and once she said this, she was determined to do exactly that. Omakayas examined him carefully. She had seen her Nokomis treat burns. Omakayas looked at and smelled the leaves and dried flowers in the birch bark packets that belonged to Nokomis. Horse mint. Omakayas removed the packet and tried to remember what to do next. Pinch whimpered and gasped. Omakayas took out the stone Nokomis used to prepare her medicines. In the center of the stone there was a hollow, and into that natural small bowl, Omakayas put the leaves that smelled summery and sharp, fresh and potent. With the other long stone Nokomis often used, Omakayas crushed them into a paste. From a bag of deer tallow, she added a yellow smear of grease, and then, forcing Pinch to lie still, she spread the paste on his burns and propped him against a tree. She brought him lots of maple-flavored water, stroked his forehead carefully, soothingly, and as she did this, surprisingly enough, he stopped howling. He looked up at his big sister with a gaze of intense trust. By the time Noko Miss, Dede, and the others returned, Pinch was quiet and looked alertly around, bright-eyed as an egg, wondering what trick he could play next. Noko Miss bent to her grandson's feet, looked carefully at what Omakaias had done. Oh, I couldn't have done a better job, she said, pleased. Noko Miss gazed proudly at her granddaughter for several long moments. My girl, you're strong and healing. And now said Dede, kindly, touching his son's prickly hair. "'What was that I heard you yell before the syrup spilled onto your feet? What about your first kill?' Pinch looked at his father. He opened his mouth. He tried to tell about the deer, but somehow he just couldn't. He was amazed at himself for not lying. "'It was a mistake,' he mumbled at last, looking at his sister. "'Megwetch,' he said, embarrassed to be caught thanking her. It was just that his feet had hurt so badly and then felt so much better. How had she done that? So that was the very first time Omakayas made someone better with her medicine. Through the years, she would think back to that moment proudly, for her treatment worked. Pinch's feet were better in every, better in very little time. His pain was so, soon gone, and he had no puckered scars. It felt very good to her to heal another human.
even if that human was Pinch.